Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. Today joining us is Kim Goodling, is, who is a shepherd and owner of Vermont Grand View Farm. She and her husband raid, raise Gotland sheep, a unique breed whose genetics date back to the Vikings on Gotland Island, Sweden. Being a typical Vermont hillside farm, they have diversified by offering their own maple syrup and by inviting guests to experience rural farm life firsthand through farm stay vacations. Kim also offers a mentoring program to other shepherds. Welcome to the podcast, Kim. Oh, thank you, Michael. It's good to be here. So talk to us a little bit. How did you get started with sheep? Uh-huh. Um, that's a good question. We started our farm as a homestead. We wanted to uh, be able to provide for our own needs and, you know, be self-sufficient. And so we started out very small with a garden and chickens, and then we added some pigs, just trying to provide for our own needs. And we were not able to keep animals year round on the property where we lived. And once we moved from that property and moved to a property where we had a barn, then we were able to keep animals year round. And the sheep came sort of at a midlife crisis moment. Mm. Um, One night I remember telling my husband that I didn't want to get to the end of my life and say, why didn't we do this or why didn't we do that? And, you know, I didn't want to end my life with regrets. And he looked at me and he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to get sheep. And that's sort of how they came about. You know, there wasn't a lot of forethought put into it. It just sort of happened. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. So you just kind of started and did you pick that specific breed to start with or did you kind of have a couple different and then settled upon this one? We actually started with Romney sheep. That was the first mm-hmm. breed that we purchased and we raised those for about 10 years. And then um, I was a homeschool mom and I homeschooled my kids all the way through high school. And as they started leaving home, I was missing them. You know, they were a huge part of my daily life. And once they left home, I was just feeling like I didn't have a purpose anymore, you know, because it was like my full-time job had just walked out the door, you know. And I needed a new focus. I needed something to look forward to. I needed... Um, something to kind of excite me again and give me something new to put my efforts into. And so a friend had given me a book by Sue Blacker called Pure Wool. And Sue Blacker has a flock of Gotland sheep, but she also owns a mill in England and her mill specializes in pure breed wool. And the book has a chapter on the different breeds of sheep that her mill processes and she'll describe each breed of sheep. And then she has a knitting pattern to go with that breed. And that's where I first learned about the Gotland sheep was reading her book. And when I came to the chapter on Gotland sheep, I just knew that I had to have that breed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now let's talk a little bit about the history of sheep in Vermont. You know, at one time I think there was more sheep in Vermont than people. Is that correct? That is correct, actually. Yes, Vermont has its roots in sheep, and a lot of people have forgotten that. 
And Vermont is mostly seen now for the cows and the dairy industry. But Merino sheep were brought to Vermont in the 1800s. And Vermont and all of New England had quite a few wool mills that processed the fiber. So very much, you know, Vermont does have its history in raising sheep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think also too, as part of that, there was actually more acres in pasture than forest because, um, I, at least I remember that from a friend of mine who was telling me some history about the area, and just because of this, how many sheep they did have. Yes, that is true. That is true. Um, and now, interestingly, so it's actually the opposite. Mm-hmm. There's now more forest in Vermont than there are sheep. And I think the I mean, thing, than there are pasture. Yeah, and I think the reason for that is sheep are incredibly agile, so they can handle pretty much any steepness of pasture. And um, again, sheep are usually herded by uh, hand or with dogs and and people, so they're able to take those steep slopes. Um, and you know, anything could be actually turned into pasture. Um, but it's really mm-hmm. interesting because now if you walk through, you know, the, the mountains of Vermont, just see the, you can still see the stone walls from back then. Um, even on these really, oh, yes. it's incredible. Um, my brother actually yep. managed, uh, Merck forest for a couple of years and, um, and their sheep program. And, and just, it was interesting learning about some of the history of that place as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. So let's talk about the Gotland sheep. Why is, uh, why this breed? Oh, that's a good question. Um, They are just a very interesting breed. They look very different from other breeds. They have an all black face, all black legs. They have sort of an elegant look in a sheep sort of way. And their wool is very different. It has gray curls. And most sheep, the wool has a crimp to it. And it's the crimp that gives the wool its springiness and resiliency, but the Gotland wool does not have a crimp. It has this lustrous curl. And so they're very striking to look at. And anytime we take them with us to sheep festivals and sheep shows, people always comment and will say, you have the most beautiful sheep here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so visually, they're just quite striking. They also are very hardy sheep and they make really great mothers um, their personalities are almost goat-like. They want to have a relationship with people. They desire that. So when these lambs are born, they will come right up to you and they'll stand at your feet and look up at you as if to say, you are going to pick me up, right? You yeah. know, so they're, they're quite personable and curious and they, the way that the lambs play, it's it's just like having these little goats, you know, um, and that's quite appealing. They're also a smaller breed. The ewes weigh anywhere from like 125 to 155, and my rams are usually 165 to 185. So they are a small breed, which makes them easier to handle. And they're a naturally short-tailed breed as well. So they're just quite uh, beautiful. And their history is really fascinating. We've traveled to Gotland Island twice, and their history is just steeped in um, you know, the Vikings, because it was Vikings who first brought sheep to Gotland Island. And so the ancestors of the Gotland sheep came from those original sheep that were brought to the island. And the story has it that around 1920, a farmer on Gotland 
saw a nice ram that was headed to market. And at that time, the sheep on the island had a very rough coat. And the sheep were gooch sheep. And he saw this ram with a nice fleece. And he took the ram home with him and started a breeding program to improve the quality of wool. And through the years, they have evolved to what is now the modern day Gotland sheep with these lovely curls. Yeah, very cool. Let's dive a little bit into why folks might want to get started with sheep. A couple of weeks ago, we actually interviewed Matthew Hayes from Hungary, and they actually run a, mm-hmm. a small um, herd of sheep on their farm. But I think that you know sheep kind of can fit a unique place in, in in farms, even some smaller farms. They really do, and you know I consider our farm to be quite small, and. The sheep have added a a new dimension. They are multi-purpose. And so, you know, a flock of sheep can provide you with several different streams of income from their meat to their wool to their pelts, uh, also to selling breeding stock. So you do get a variety of products out of them. They are fairly easy keepers if you choose your breed well. Mm-hmm. Um, they're easy to keep. And I have used them quite a bit on our farm to help reclaim pasture. The breed that we have really love browsing. So they will go into an area that's overgrown with brambles and weeds and they will just clean it right out. Um, So, you know, we've used them in that way. You've also mentioned that, you know, they're very agile. They can handle a wide variety of terrain and some breeds can even handle very moist pastures Um, They have very strong hooves. Now, not all breeds are that way, but many are. So if you're smart about choosing your breed and and choose one that's going to meet your um, objectives, then they can really add quite a bit to a farm. Mm -hmm. And the thing about sheep is that they are great lawnmowers. Oh, definitely. I mean, before we got sheep, we had this 10-acre field, and every year we had to find someone to brush hog for us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, once you have sheep, you don't need to do that anymore. In fact, we do use them to mow our lawn even. We will save part of our yard and use that as part of our rotational grazing system. Yeah, um, because they're pretty easy to manage. At least, again, you have to pick your breeds right, but they're pretty easy to manage with, let's say, a premier electrofence or something. You just set that up, um, electrify mm-hmm. it, put them in, and uh, you know, next day move them. And the nice thing about sheep, too, is it's not like these great big cow pies. It's more like little pellets on the yard, which are a lot easier to walk yeah. over. And, uh, and they just kind of they work their way right into the lawn really easily. Yes, yes. All right, so let's zoom out a little bit and let's talk about, let's say, just the different uh, kind of types of sheep. Because there's the, my brother actually is out in Oklahoma and he actually raises hair sheep for meat out mm-hmm. there. So talk through a little bit about uh, the different things because actually some people actually milk sheep too. That is true. There are some breeds like your Frisians who are good milkers and there's nothing better than a nice sheep cheese, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so, yes, there is a wide variety of sheep. And, you know, each sheep has its purpose in place, and each breed has their own unique characteristics, which makes it quite fun and interesting. So I actually have a friend, Jody Summers, um, from Dancing U Farm in uh, Granville, New York. So he was literally down the road from us, and he actually does sheep cheese and uh, incredible quality. They do a ricotta, a sheep ricotta. Um, but, yeah, it's an incredible farm, and they actually do – also they do farm-to-table dinners there, which is really cool as well. Mm. 
Um, so yeah, they've got a really cool operation. He's been working on that breeding program for a number of years now. So we've got the different types of sheep. You got, you know, your hair sheep, you've got, um, some people do milking, um, majority though in the U S would probably be for meat because wool has kind of gone a little bit out of just, it's not as, as big of demand anymore, especially with, let's say the Australian markets and New Zealand markets having massive flocks. Yeah, I I would agree. However, I think the United States has a very strong um, interest on a local level for wool. Okay. All you need to do is step into one of the larger sheep and wool festivals, for instance, the one in Maryland uh-huh. that usually happens in May. Rhinebeck that happens in New York in October. There's a few of them out West and there is a very strong fiber community. Um, So even though on an industrial level, um, you know, the wool market has struggled on a more local level, I feel like it's really taken off and people today are they're, they've kind of gotten over merino wool. They uh-huh. still love it. It still has its place. But today there is a lot of emphasis on pure breed wool and people want to experiment with and knit with all the different breeds of sheep. And I think today more than ever, knitters and the fiber community really want to feel like they have a connection to the wool that they work with. They want to know the sheep. They want to know the shepherd. And so at that more localized level, there is quite the strong community around the fiber and the wool. And many farms Small family farms support themselves, you know, support their flock of sheep through selling their yarn and their wool. So, yes, maybe on a global level, the market is down, but I think on a more local level, people are just in love with it. And, you know, the wool market is very strong at a local level. Uh uh All right. So what you're basically saying is if you do a good job of marketing and producing your and uh, introducing yourself as a premier small brand that you can really find a niche for yourself. Oh, definitely. You definitely can. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little, let's kind of shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about the business side of sheep. Um, so how do you, what's your enterprise look like? Um, what, what aspects are you selling that are bringing an income for your sheep? Yeah, for us, we are very diverse and sometimes that presents a challenge, but we primarily sell breeding stock and that is the our largest income producer is through selling the breeding stock. And we also sell yarn from our sheep and fiber. And then I also take some of their wool and I turn it into finished products. So I may weave rugs with it or knit shawls, you know, that kind of thing. So those are the main income streams for the farm. But as you said, you know, as a farm, you really need to establish what it is that you want to sell from your flock and then try and find that niche market for you. I mean, I never had difficulty selling my Romney wool. And when I had the Romneys, I actually did a yarn CSA share. And that was quite successful. And I did that for years, maybe eight or 10 years. And um, now with the Gotland sheep, just the breed itself has kind of created this niche market Mm. because they're not very prevalent. And it's still a a growing breed within the U.S. All right. So how would that work? Talk to us a little bit about how you made that, that CSA work. Well, for the CSA, I 
I knew how much wool my flock could produce. I had a very good handle on that. And so in the late fall or late summer, early fall, I would begin advertising my CSA shares and I sold them by the pound. So you could purchase one pound of yarn and people would pay me up front for the yarn while it was still, while the wool was still growing on the sheep. So I would collect the money in the late summer, early fall. And then after the sheep were shorn, which wasn't until the spring, and then I would have to send my fiber to the mill, then I would just ship it out to my customers. So people were buying the wool about six to nine months before they would actually have the yarn. And it was great because I, you know, I had fiber coming in from the mill and I just boxed it up and sent it right out. You know, I didn't have to put a lot of energy into going to a festival to sell it or marketing it. You know, all of that was kind of done at one time in the fall. So it was really great. And my CSA program grew so much that I actually had to start purchasing wool and supplementing what I could grow on my own farm. So it really took off. It was at a time when uh, fiber CSA shares were very new and not very many people were doing it. And I think we were maybe only one of two in the U.S. at that time when I had started it. Mm. So it it was a great program. And again, it, it was that desire for knitters to know the source of their wool. You know, they're become, they were becoming very aware of how wool is processed at an industrial level. And they very much wanted to understand and have a connection to the producer you know, the shepherd as well as the sheep. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So now the thing about that too, is with your sheep, your, your income comes in mostly just one time of year. So with the CSA, were you getting your income a long time before that, or how did that work? Yeah. You know, that was the other nice thing about doing the CSA shares is that it gave me the cash I needed ahead of time to do the processing because Uh processing wool is very costly. So it did help in that way. Um, You're right. The, our income tends to come in waves on our farm. However, I've been able to spread it out throughout the year. You know, I sell my breeding stock. Usually that's in the early summer and I will sell my lambs, you know, within about a four or five week window. So that's a, a big influx of income at that time of year. But then by attending sheep festivals at different times, And now doing some virtual sales, I'm able to keep some income coming in, you know, throughout the year. It doesn't always just come in at one time. Gotcha. Now, you also do some other aspects for income on your farm with the farm stays. Talk to us a bit about how that works. Yeah, the the farm stays are so much fun. Our farm has always had some form of agritourism. And in the early years, we did farm tours. We did fiber days where I brought in fiber art teachers that would teach classes all day here on the farm. And, you know, we we've always kind of seen ourselves as this sort of teaching base and we want to bring people into our world and give them firsthand uh, knowledge and experience of life on a farm. And the farm stay has been really great. It has, it's literally half of my farm income and we are only renting 
from usually spring, like April through November. It's not that we're not open in the winter, but I think most people are, I don't know, in the winter, they're looking more to come to Vermont for downhill skiing. And though we are an hour away from like four different major Uh ski resorts, when you come to Vermont to ski, most people want to stay at the the mountain. So we tend to have most of our guests come in the spring, summer, and fall. But it's been a great program. The one thing that I feel farms need to clarify in their own minds first is the difference between what I call agritourism and agritainment. Agritourism is when you are inviting the public onto your property to step into your shoes, to work alongside of you, or to see authentic farm life happening. Agritainment is when you are providing some kind of entertainment in an agricultural setting. So agritainment may be pick your own pumpkin, pick your own apples, um, it might be a corn maze or a hayride. Yeah, and, or sunflower field. Yeah, and and there is a distinct difference. And the people that are coming to your farm have in their minds what it is they're looking for. And I used to have people always ask me when they would call to book a reservation, they would say, what activities do you have to entertain my children? And I would say, I don't entertain children, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. And so I've had to, you know, I had to get my messaging uh, really refined on my website. And when I speak to people so that they understand that what I'm inviting their five-year-old to do is to come in my greenhouse and help me plant all of my tomato plants. Yes. Or... I'm inviting your eight-year-old to come into my chicken coop with me and collect the eggs, you know? Um, so that's my, my little piece of advice. If, if you want to venture into agritourism is to make sure that you are clear in your mind. And then the other thing is you really need to be very clear in what is okay and what is not okay for your guests to do. And it's best if they know that ahead of time, um, you know, because people will do things that you would never have thought they would do. Mm. And mm-hmm. you'll be amazed at what people will do. For instance, one year we had a farm tour and I look up and this mother has a baby in arms and the toddler couldn't have been more than two years old. She helped herself into our Rams paddock. Ooh. And I, even though I had signs, you know, saying, yeah. you know, please don't go in with our animals. And I was like, oh, my word, this is not good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you really have to be very clear and you have to be very specific with your guests in terms of what they can do and what they can't do. Yeah. And maybe your paddock needs to have, you know, actual locks on it instead of just a a latch. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Uh, Okay. So you've got that. And so how do you set that up? Do you you have like uh, cabins or what's the accommodations that people stay in? On our farm, our farmhouse is actually two separate houses that were built right next to each other. The house that we rent out was the original home that was built in the late 1700s. And then in the 1800s, they added on right next to it. And so we have a common door. There's a door that leads from my side of the house into our guest quarters. But it's it's just a perfect setup because we can have guests here, but they're completely private and they don't have to be in our space. So we rent a suite that has two bedrooms, living room, a small kitchen and bathroom. So it's the self-contained unit. But a lot of people have gotten into building little cabins and that kind of thing on their property as well. 
Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So you've got that and people stay there. And then you also do the, so, you know, kind of round yourself out, you do the maple syrup. And uh, is that something that you guys do all the boiling yourself or you just collect the sap? Yeah, we we do everything ourselves and we do it the old fashioned way. We hang buckets on trees and collect it by hand and our evaporator is wood fired. It's very small, it's a small operation, but you know, we provide enough syrup for our own family's needs, which those needs increased once we started making our own. Yeah. <laughs> um, as you, you use it more freely when you make it yourself. And then we make enough to sell, you know, just to kind of supplement the farm income. And the past year, I've gotten really interested in making some infused syrups. We grow some currants, red currants and black currants on our farm. And I've done some black currant infused and red currant infused maple syrup and that is really good so that's sort of a specialty product that we can sell uh, using the maple syrup and then at Christmas I did I called it a Christmas infused maple syrup and I used cardamom and cinnamon so um, and then we also have made little maple candies um, from the syrup. Mm -hmm. Okay. So these flavored syrups, you must be able to do an upcharge and, you know, doing the, the few things you're adding into that isn't much work. So I'm sure it's a, a good um, value added product. Oh, it's very much a value added product. You know, I can take the same amount of syrup that I would, uh, sell at one price and I can double and sometimes triple it by infusing it, putting it in more of a, uh, a more fancy glass mm -hmm. bottle instead of a plastic jug, you know. Absolutely. And I'm sure you sell that to yeah. some of your farm visitors. We do. Yes, we do. And I also sell it online. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, that's a great way for yeah. people to upsell. Oh, obviously, well, out here in Ohio, we do have um, our farm actually only has like two maple trees, but there are sugar bushes around, and um, that's definitely something we could add to our store. Um, working with mm -hmm. someone locally here. All right, let's talk a little bit about because you actually work with um, a mentoring program for shepherds. Talk to us a little bit about you know that and how that got started. Yeah, um, I do offer a mentoring program for other shepherds online. And it really started because I've, I've, well, a couple different reasons. I've always kept a blog and my blog through the years sort of evolved into this instructional blog of how to care for sheep. And it grew in readership. So I knew that there was a need for this. And then I began having a lot of people come to me and ask me questions. And then as you, you know, as the internet became and, and Facebook especially became more and more popular, I would see a lot of shepherds in sheep groups asking questions about how to raise sheep. And often they would start by saying, hey, guys, I need some advice really fast. I've got this problem, but please don't criticize me. Please don't judge me. Uh -huh. And, you know, I think it can be sort of an unfriendly environment at times, you know, you can put a post out in a Facebook group and people feel quite freely to uh, voice their opinion about what you are or not doing for your animals. And they're not oh, always gosh. kind, Absolutely, you know, and so I wanted to create this kind of safe haven, this place where people can come without judgment, where they feel like they can ask any question because any question is okay. I have one, one of my shepherds that I work with in the beginning, she kept saying, oh, I have another stupid question. And I, I would tell her there are no stupid questions. All questions are good. That means you're learning, you know. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, so I created this space and it just kind of grew. I Within that program, I have a lot of uh, mini courses that kind of walk you through from 
the very beginning of how to prepare your farm to bring sheep to your farm property and then all the way through to how do you promote and market your farm. Um, And within my program, I have some shepherds who don't even have sheep yet. They're still in the research phase and they want to learn everything they can before they get sheep. And then I have some shepherds that have owned sheep for a very long time and they're focusing more on their farm business. So it's been a lot of fun. I've had um, people from all across the United States with all different breeds of sheep and all different stages of shepherding. And then for a while, I even had a a shepherd in Bulgaria who joined us, which was really fun. So um, it's, it's been great. And um, I, I just feel like there is a very strong need for it. Yeah. Yeah. Now your blog is livingwithgotlands.com. That's correct. Yes. Yeah, but you, but you also have the main website, which is grandviewfarmvt.com as well. So very cool. Yeah. So, and you, you mentor folks of all different breeds too, of sheep, not just your breed is what, correct? That is correct. Yes. Yes. So, but what's interesting when I first started the mentoring program, I've, because I am known to other Gotland breeders, a lot of the people that first entered my program have Gotland sheep. But since then, we've, you know, we've added to that. We have several other breeds that are represented now. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So what, uh, what does the future hold? Oh boy, that's a good question. <laughs> um, first of all, we we are in a breeding program to really try and refine our Gotland genetics. We there are uh, three different main Gotland. Uh, sets of genetics. You have Swedish genetics, you have UK genetics, and New Zealand genetics. And our farm wants to really focus on the Swedish, Swedish genetics. And each of these sets of genetics come with slightly different characteristics. So we are really trying to refine our flock as close as we can to those Swedish genetics. So that is is an ongoing process. Um, In terms of the uh, online work I do with other shepherds, you know, I just really hope that can continue and um, you know, continue to spread the word and, and bring more people into that program. Mm, absolutely. Hey, Michael here. Are you a beginning farmer looking to grow your farm? Maybe you're still starting and still trying to figure out the enterprises, the who you're selling to, what your value ladder is. If you're going to get funding for your farm, you need to find someone to loan you that money. Well, I want you to join our four stages to a profitable farm webinar happening on the 8th of February. In it, we're going to walk you through everything from the idea to figuring out the proper sales channels for your product to make sure you get the proper um, money for your products and then go every way to the finances and finally talking about funding. So where you can go to get funding for your new farm operation. So again, join us February 8th, growingfarmers.com forward slash stages, and we'll walk you through everything you need to know to go from beginning farmer to fully funded. So let's talk a little bit about um, if you were to start your farm over again, what would you do differently? Uh, um, I think what I would have done is I would have bought sheep sooner. <laughs> yeah. You know, I would have I would have brought them onto our farm property sooner than I did. Um, honestly. And, you know, the other thing is we have always operated our farm as a debt-free farm. We have never taken out a loan of any size of any kind to uh, purchase equipment or improve infrastructure. We've always operated on this debt-free model. And through the years, I've... I'm not quite sure if that's the best model to use or not, you know, because of that, 
we went without for a long time. We we didn't even own a pickup truck for years. We didn't own a tractor for a long time. And, you know, at the end, you stand there and you think, okay, who's better off? Is it the person who has built this up from the ground up without any debt? Or is it the person who's been willing to take on debt so they can grow faster? You know? Yeah. And, and and I honestly, I don't know what that answer is. Well, it's a complicated question. I, I, there's, you know, there's both sides. I think are, there can be truth in both sides. I don't think there's one right way forward. Um, you know, the biggest mistake we see people make is if they go out and get massive amounts of funding and don't have the faintest clue in the world how to spend it and then literally blow Mm -hmm. through it and are left holding the bag. Um, I was just talking to my USDA guy um, for our, our, we just did a micro loan. And so he was saying, oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. he he said, I can't tell you how many people, first year farmers get a $50,000 loan. And then because they don't have the right expertise or don't know what they're doing, they basically just halfway through the year, just say, I'm, I'm done. I'm leaving. And we have to come try to, you know, salvage assets that they literally, you know, just squandered. Um, Right. But, you know, right. for, for us too, I mean, I have, again, over a decade of experience with uh, vegetable production. So for us, it's more about, I don't want to spend years, you know, shoveling compost by hand. Um, I've got the experience. Mm-hmm. I know, I know how to do it. I know how to, you know, how to, how to build what I want to do. So it's more about, um, it's more about being able to allocate resources to the right things. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I think, I think there's absolutely all aspects of it. And, but I, I'll be honest, I still don't own a pickup truck <laughs> much, to my, <laughs> much to my father-in-law's chagrin. Cause I borrow his once in a while, but, um, we do yes. have, we yeah. have a, we have a trailer, um, and, a, a RAV and, I actually have multiple friends with pickup trucks and trailers that I can either borrow or rent. And so right. I don't want to yeah. take, you know, because the kind of hauling we would need to be doing, you know, be hauling pallets of fertilizer and stuff. That's a $15,000 truck. And so that's a lot of right. resources that I would rather pay someone two fifty dollars a mile or $3 a mile to do trucking for me than have yeah. to do it myself. Yeah. I mean, obviously there are downsides of that. You know, let's say someone yeah. says, oh, I've got this piece of equipment. If you come tomorrow, you can get it. And I can't because my truck is tied up or something like that. That could be a problem. Right. It, just, it hasn't happened a, a ton, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's huge aspects to any, any part of that. I probably should just do a full episode just on debt and the farm and you know, <laughs> what that looks like. I think that would actually right. uh, be really helpful for folks, but yeah. 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 Well, our kids give us a hard time because they have noticed that we have added these pieces of equipment after they left home. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know, they provided a lot of manual labor through the years. And they're like, what do you mean you now have a hay elevator, you know? And I'm like, well, look how strong you are because you had to lift the hay bales up, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 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 But, you know, that is true. You know, as we have gotten older in our farming, we've had to make changes. If we want to keep this lifestyle, then we have to make these changes to allow us to do that, you know. And so getting that hay elevator was pretty key. (laughs) Yes, I can imagine, especially with small square bales. Um, Yeah. Over the, you know, building the farm, did you ever feel overwhelmed? You know, there is, there's always a sense of underlying overwhelm, but sort of in a good way, you know, when you're raising livestock, I'll never forget the year when my husband calculated how many mouths we were feeding on our farm. And for a small farm, it was a lot. I forget the number. It was like 125 or something. When you counted the sheep at the time we were raising chickens for meat and we were raising uh, chickens for eggs and then with just our own kids and family. And so, you know, when you are put in charge of keeping these creatures alive, there's always this uh, awareness of that, that they depend on you and they count on you. Um, I'm not sure I would call that a sense of overwhelm in a negative way, but 
certainly I've at different times had that, you know, strong awareness that every creature on my property is relying on me to care for them properly and to be knowledgeable and how to care for them so that they can live the best life they can. Um, So I guess if there were a sense of overwhelm, maybe that's what it would be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Do you have a favorite farm tool? Uh (laughs) Um, You know, I will be honest and say it's my little red tough cart, uh, you know, little wheelbarrow. I absolutely love that thing. And I use it for hauling manure, for hauling hay or water or fencing or, you know, because we are a small farm and for years we did everything by hand, um, that little tough cart kind of became my partner and friend. So that's probably my favorite. Now, once we got a tractor, you know, that's pretty handy too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I can carry more at one time, but I do love, uh, you know, I, I just love doing things by hand and that little wheelbarrow uh, is so diverse, you know, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And what kind of tractor did you end up getting? We ended up getting a John Deere tractor. It's a small one, Uh um, but yeah, and that was a little controversial because up on our mountainside farming community, it's like everyone has their own kind of tractor, you know? Um, So there's a little uh, friendly competition among the different uh, farmers up here. Yeah, we actually ended up um, with end of year spending picking up a, a John Deere. So that was um, that was I, again. I I'd driven a couple different ones, and um, and it it really comes down to a couple things. I mean, where you can get if you have good service around for that piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, yeah. what you're just comfortable driving, and um, yeah, and and I think about the John Deere is I've driven a lot of different tractors, and John Deere has a, is does really really good job with hydraulics. They're just mm-hmm. masters of it. And I don't know what it is. I don't know why other companies struggle with it, but they're faster. They're more, you can, they're more finesse. Um, and we do a lot of bucket work and forks, you know, moving, yeah. moving a material around with a small vegetable farm. And so that's what yeah. it, a lot of it came down to um, was those couple things. So yeah, anyway, right. we're really happy with the with it so far, even though we've only used it a couple times here and there, because um, the season hasn't started. But um, yeah, having the right equipment for your farm, you know, I think the thing is too is I'm you know mid thirties now, and um, I've already you know already have some aches and pains from a decade of farming, um, and mm-hmm. I know several people in the regenerative ag space who have destroyed their body, and you know or you know yeah. have, have to see. Um, you know, they, they, they champion very small scale ag and, and all this hand tools, but in reality, their bodies are hurting because that's the journey they took. And so exactly. our, our push yeah. has been, you know, get the right equipment. Don't struggle yeah. time and time again when a piece of equipment can do the work for you. So yeah, right. that's, that's yeah. where we are with that is we just want to make sure farmers, you know, a true thriving farmer is someone that, you know, can still get out of bed when they're 60 and 70 years old. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, well, if, you know, there have been those moments where I will say to my husband, we need to work smarter, not harder, you know, and I think you do have to ask yourself that, you know, what here can I change in order to work smarter instead of harder? Uh uh Absolutely. Well, Kim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Oh, um, I can't think of anything else. No, no. 
Yeah, well, it's been a fabulous conversation. I've learned, enjoyed learning about your farm and the, the sheep. And I, I love too how you've kind of built your farm system. So you've got the sheep, but then you got the farm staycations, which pull people to you to see the sheep. I'm sure they're seeing the sheep when they're there. And then obviously you're selling the maple syrup while they're there as well. So very cool how you've kind of built that core um, on, your, on your farm. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. And then the mentoring too, that is something that's so important because there's just not a lot of people out there doing that. So I really appreciate that. And if folks are interested in that, what's the best place to get in touch with you? Um, the best place if they want to read more about it is I created a website just for the mentoring. It's vermontfarmschool.com and they can go there and they could actually book a consultation with me if they're not sure if it's right for them, but they can get a little bit more information about the program and what I'm doing. And if they do have sheep, they can even grab, I have a, a guide there for uh, shepherds for lambing season. So they could even grab a copy of that if they uh, have sheep and want to learn about lambing. So that's the best place to find that information. All right. Well, Kim, again, thank you so much for your time and uh, can't wait to air this for our audience. All right. Thank you very much, Michael. Hey, Thriving Farmers, have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. Hey, Thriving Farmers. Next week on the podcast, we will have farmers Lex and Beth Antonic from Providence Hill Farm above Toronto, Canada. So they have um, been farming a couple years up there and I've had the privilege of visiting them a couple times and seeing the farm and how they've grown it. One of the things I've been impressed on is how they built the farm on their terms as well as it's a fully family operation. So join me next week, listen to Lex and Beth talk about how they've built the farm that works for them. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.